Welcome to That Said. I am Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we will be speaking with Brian Karam about his new book, Free the Press, The Death of American Journalism and How to Revive It. Brian is an award-winning journalist, author, and TV analyst. He has been an investigative journalist for over 40 years, covering domestic and international politics at the local, state, and national level. As a member of the White House Press Corps, he was one of two journalists whose credentials were revoked by former President Trump for his determination to speak truth to power. Brian is the recipient of the National Press Club's Freedom of the Press Award. Brian, welcome to That Said. Hey, thanks, Michael. Glad to be here. So, Brian, I always like to start these interviews by asking our authors to tell us a little bit about themselves. So can you start off with how you got into this business and we'll take you through some of the paths that you've been down? Uh, sometimes I feel like it was drag kicking and screaming into it, but um, I, I always wanted to write and travel the world on somebody else's nickel. <laughs> that was that was a, a guide when I was, you know, uh, when I was younger. Plus, I grew up with probably one of the best newspapers in in the country at the time, the Courier Journal and Louisville Times, and uh, read that extensively. And many of my many of my youngest memories, my oldest memories, uh, have something to do with that paper. And um, my family, being a family of lawyers, my my uh, uncle came to me when I was young and said, uh, "Here's a check. Go to law school." And I tore up the check and said, "I don't think so. I'd rather go to journalism school." And so um, that's that's how I ended up uh, where I am. Pretty much, I I always like the idea of um, being able to witness things and see them firsthand and tell people about them rather than reading about it, seeing it or hearing it from another source. I wanted to be that, that source of, of information. You are an old timer in the sense that you started out at very local community based reporting and you moved toward national. And I, I found interesting in the book, your first coverage of uh, high school football. And yeah. it, it struck me, you told a story about your first column on a high school running back. And <laughs> it's sort of indicative of who you would come to be as an adult. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about that story because it's a fun little story. Well, I, you know, bef- I'll, I'll, before that, you know, I was thinking about all the places that closed and all the places I worked. And very first place I ever worked, I delivered newspapers for the Jefferson Reporter, which in, has no, it, it was bought out by the Courier Journal. Every place I've ever worked is that way. Uh, has been bought out, sold, downsized, changed hands. And Conroe Courier, where I worked when I first got out of school, was uh, a case in point. I was a, I was hired as a, basically as a high school sports reporter and having played high school sports and being from a sports family, it it wasn't where I wanted to be, but it was where I could get a job. And so one of the first things I did was um, I wrote a column. I I noticed that there was this kid that played for them uh, for Conroe high school in Texas. And he usually played defense. In fact, he almost always played defense, defensive back. But when they absolutely had to have yardage, if they absolutely had to have a touchdown, they put that kid in and he was great. And so I, I said, you know, he, I remember writing a column. I said he, he cuts through a, you know, a defense like a hot knife through butter. Why don't they, you know, put this guy on offense more? So the next day I was going to interview the coach uh, in Conroe and I, I walked in and there was like four or five of them there. And the, the defensive coordinator, whose name was Tex, 
had a belt buckle about the size of his head and a 10 gallon hat and the boots. And I mean, he was, it looked like he was straight out of central casting and uh, they were upset that I had written that column and, and uh, text, he spit on the floor, which to this day, I'll never understand. He's got a big wide in his mouth and a chaw and he, he spits right on the floor and he looks at me and he goes, what the hell do you know about football anyway? And I said, well, you know, I played it in high school. My dad was a coach. He goes, what state? And uh, I said, well, Kentucky. And he goes, well, this year's Texas, boy. You don't know shit about football. So I, I kind of you know, blushed at that. And then the head coach came over to me and says, well, you know, the way we look at it, you know, Texas a little outline there. He said, but the way we look at it is if you're writing for, you know, the Conroe paper about the Conroe high school team, you, you should be a fan for Conroe. And I said, well, uh, I, I appreciate your sentiment in that. However, uh, you don't sign my paycheck. And the day you do, you can tell me what to write. But until then, you got to take what I write and live with it. And I figured that was, you know, that's the way a reporter is supposed to be. And they didn't think that as much. And so I had, had a, 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 I had a conversation with the owner of the newspaper, the, uh, you know, the CEO of the newspaper, when I got back and learned pretty easily that day that, you know, um, advertisers and, uh, you know, I guess today they, I don't know, influencers in the community had a lot more influence or wanted to have influence over what we write as reporters. And uh, it's never been anything I've subscribed to, and I've been kind of hard-nosed and stubborn about that. But uh, I think ultimately it's it's not what they want us to write. That's just propaganda. Right. And you gravitate from sports to to news. You You start – I guess from there over to KMOL in in Texas. No, I, I went from there down to the uh, Laredo News in Laredo, Texas, and covered. I was a county beat reporter, and so I got to cover everything that went on in Webb County, which is a border county. So long before you know the border became uh, a political football, I was covering uh, immigration problems down on the border. And in fact, some of the early stuff I did at investigative reporting that I did um, uncovered, today we call them colonias. Back then they were illegal subdivisions. And what was happening is you'd have these Texas uh, oilmen and, and I mean, geez, again, straight out of central casting, you know, the bolo tie, the white shirt, the big cowboy hat. And they were renting thousands of acres of land and then turning around and selling it to illegal immigrants, uh, land that they didn't own, by the way. And they were selling, and it was unimproved land, so there were no streets, there was no infrastructure at all. They just carved it up, and there was a dirt path that served as a road. And in some cases, they helped smuggle the immigrants over to the United States and then sold them land. And I got a copy of one of the uh, the, uh, sales agreements, and basically it was $125 down and $125 a month on an open-ended contract, which meant pretty much for the rest of your life on land that these developers didn't even really own. And it was really, it was, it was very telling to see people that would come over to the United States with absolutely nothing and give everything just to have a glimpse of the American dream. And it was very, it was some of the saddest stuff I ever covered. Dangerous too. Getting shot at was no fun, but you know, (laughs) it comes with the territory. Well, and then from there, you go on to covering the war in Kuwait and the war on, on drugs, yes? 
Yeah, the war on drugs, I kind of start. you know, that was a <clears throat> one of the first stories I ever covered on the war on drugs as I saw him. You know, as most reporters are, I'm very adept at reading things upside down. So I saw a memo on a chief of police desk's, uh, desk in Laredo about a missing DEA agent, Kiki Camarena. And so I broke one of the first stories on his on him missing, and that later became you know very big because he was in fact murdered by uh, drug uh, dealers in Mexico in Guadalajara, I believe. And I had covered that was one of the other things that being on the border uh, gave me the opportunity to do in covering crime. I was a county beat reporter, but a lot of the county news um, was surrounded by you know drug dealing, drug trafficking, and uh, that that gave me um, contacts in the DEA and and uh, the FBI and lifelong contacts there and, and what has been a, a lifelong uh, I coverage. I mean, part of most of my career at some point or other has covered, has been covering those border issues and the drug issues that I first started covering in Laredo. And after, yeah, after Laredo, I went to, uh, I went back to Kentucky, back to my home and worked for the Courier Journal and Louisville Times in the last great days of that newspaper and it's no coincidence that we didn't get Mitch McConnell until after we got rid of the Courier Journal and Louisville Times it's very telling what's happened to journalism in just that one story you know newspapers especially the Courier was very uh, they were very good about vetting uh, candidates for office and to get an endorsement from the Courier was quite a thing even people who didn't like the Courier uh, would would advertise that they were endorsed by the courier because what would happen to get an endorsement from that newspaper, and and I go into some detail of, of this in the book. They would go. You would have to submit your you you'd be vetted like you know you were applying for a job, and you would go in there and and do an interview in front of one or two people. The whole editorial board would would uh, have you know pitch in and ask questions. They would discuss your your resume. They would go through your history of what you did and how you did it. And what you know and and look. We don't have the power of subpoena, but reporters do have quite the power to go and find out information. And so we would go, you know, they would go out and dig up everything and do opposition research on these uh, candidates and then interview them. And uh, right after the courier folded or sold to Gannett, uh, that's when uh, Mitch McConnell got, you know, elected or he was one of the last on the cycle. It was right in that, that time frame. So it was very frightening to see what happened to journalism and, and the courier was a, uh, was the death knell of good journalism in this country when it sold to Gannett. Well, and you report in the book over and over the collateral consequences of the elimination of the community newspaper and the impacts that it has on society. Maybe you can flesh that out a little bit while well, we're on this topic. It's, it's the backbone. Community journalism is the backbone of good journalism. Today, there are people that cover the White House that have never worked anywhere prior to working as a reporter in the White House. They do not have the gravitas, do not have the background, do not have the experience to understand nuance or how to push back against, uh, you know, the White House, a very powerful place to, to cover. And it's very, you know, it's it ensconced its trappings of power and, and access are huge. And it's very easy for a young reporter or producer to become enamored of that power. You know, oh, my God, if I, if I challenge these people, 
I won't get to ride on Air Force One. I won't be in the diplomatic room. Well, you know, I've been on Air Force One, big deal. The food's better. You still sit in the back of the aircraft after a while. It gets kind of boring. And, you know, I've been in the diplomatic room, don't care. It's, it's, they, they, they really go after access and hold it up as a carrot and a stick for young reporters. And so you'd never learn at a community, like at a community level, covering a city council meeting, covering a PTA meeting, covering, you know, high school sports, getting to know people in your community. Uh, enables you to build sources and find out news that, uh, you know, later becomes national news. Most of the big national stories, not breaking, were originally broken at a community newspaper level. And today there are thousands of communities that do not have a community newspaper or a community voice. And that's one of the biggest problems we have today in journalism is the lack of experienced community reporting. And I always say that, you know, and they've done some things to kill it at the state and local and federal level. They've gotten rid of public notice ads. A lot of those public notice ads not only provide transparency in government, but are essential for local businesses. When you see, you know, uh, who got um, promoted and when you see, uh, oh, this is an estate sale, that person died, or you see the meeting is coming up this Friday and they're going to talk about roads and bridges, all that kind of stuff enables like salesmen and lawyers to look for clients, learn about their community. You know, the butcher down the street may learn something from his community. And so it helps build community. And without it, we don't have a a community today. We have, you know, the right and the left at the national level. And at the local level, we never learn tolerance for each other or because of a lack of diversity of news. I mean, all of us have more in common than we have separate or different from each other. We all want paved streets. We all want, you know, clean water. We all want, you know, the electricity to come on. And all of those issues are dealt with in local newspapers and local media, and we don't have them anymore. And so the death of community and local journalism is it, it, institutionally one of the biggest problems we face today. Well, as well, though, you write that as a local reporter, learning to divine truth is a lifetime pursuit and that a lift of an eyebrow can sometimes say more than an entire sentence. And so you have to essentially learn to hear what people are not saying to divine the truth of the matter. Well, and you know, (laughs) there, there are a lot of people that go, well, I, I saw the uh, um, white house press briefing on television. So I know what it was like. I was there. You weren't there. You don't know. Same with city council meetings. The same with, you know, I had a, uh, an old editor of mine who said, look, get off your ass and go knock on doors. The best way to be a reporter is to meet people and to talk to people. And we don't do a lot of that today. We cover a lot of stuff via, you know, especially since the pandemic cover a lot of stuff, you know, like this through zoom meetings and, through uh, live streaming events, and we never get to see the people one-on-one. And what a community journalist learns real quick, if you are curious and smart, you learn real quick to find out when someone's lying to you and someone is leading you on and when someone is leaving something out. And it is often a, a, an eyebrow. It's it, it's a shuffling of the feet. It's, it's, for example, when I found out about the DEA agent, Kiki Camarena, if I had had a Zoom call with that guy that day, I wouldn't have seen what was on his desk. 
It was the fact that I was there. It was the fact that I was, oh, I saw it. I recognized it. And, 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 and I looked at it. And, you know, that I, I'll walk into, like, the press secretary's office today, Jen Psaki. I'll walk into the White House press office, and I notice things. You know, oh, she has an espresso like I have. Oh, those are her kids. Those things are important in learning to, to communicate with people. And you cannot communicate with people if you if you don't know how. And you learn how. I, I always say that being a reporter is like applying the scientific method to communications. It, it's and, it, and you have to be able to do that. And it's a lifelong pursuit, and no one ever perfects it. Earl Long of Louisiana has Earl a, Unkempt Long. <laughs> he has a great quote, which sort of is apropos of our conversation. He writes. Don't write anything you can phone. Don't phone anything you can talk. Don't talk anything you can whisper. Don't whisper anything you can smile. Don't smile anything you can nod. And don't nod anything you can wink. (laughs) And that's why it's important to be around them. (laughs) That's that's one way to learn. (laughs) Well, because you you have to learn the winks. Yeah, you have to. Yeah, it's um, communication is more than just words. Uh, words are important, useful, but it, it's just part of the process. Now, presently or most recently, your career has taken you to be a White House reporter for Playboy magazine. How long have you done that? Well, I started working with Playboy in the 90s, um, and I was the last person standing when they closed their editorial department at the beginning, or I guess it was April of last year, and these days I write for uh, Salon.com, but um, Playboy was perhaps one of the most interesting places I ever worked. Um, I I was working there while I was also running uh, two local newspapers, so I would go and visit the White House for my local newspapers, and then write for Playboy as well. Um, It enabled me, the independence of Playboy is one of the things that we really sorely miss today. It wasn't owned by a large corporation. One person kind of held the, the, you know, the strings and the reins. And he was dedicated to putting together good journalism. Now, whatever else came with Playboy, I'm just the excuse people gave for buying the magazine. I, I wrote the articles. And I... My interaction with people at Playboy was was uh, encouraging. It was um, uplifting uh, to to work with people who really cared about getting it right and didn't really care if they uh, you know shook people up. In fact, they wanted you to do it, and that's our job. That's you know you you you're in the White House. They're there to put their best foot forward. There we're there to question every move they make. Sam Donaldson, in the foreword of your book, is quoted as saying that good reporters know that their job is to report on the intentions and actions of powerful men and women who run our government and to question them about matters of public interest. It's about being fair and right. That's right. And, and, and I'm sorry, go ahead. No, and I was, no, please go ahead. Oh, well, I, the thing about Sam is, and, you know, he's was one of my early mentors and I love Sam to death. And, you know, I remember the, my first day walking into the 
White House press briefing room. It was in 1986. I was all of 25 years old. The first person I met was Helen Thomas. And I named my podcast, just asked the question after what she told me. And she said, Brian, don't ever be afraid to ask a question, even if you think it's stupid. She said, it doesn't matter what the question is. It doesn't even matter that they answer it. What matters is that, or how they answer it. What matters is at the end of the day, they cannot deny that the issue has been brought before them. And Sam (laughs) took me aside and said, everything she says is true, and I'll teach you how to yell out enough so you're heard. And (laughs) Sam was part of that great generation of reporters that questioned everyone, Reagan, Bush, Clinton, Kennedy, everyone fell under, you know, to some extent. And I know people say that they gave Kennedy a pass and LBJ didn't get the pass that Kennedy got, and that may be true. But nonetheless, these reporters were there and covered and questioned all of them. And Sam was one of those people who is just, you know, a firebrand of bravery and, and, and a model of what journalism should be. Never afraid to take on those in power, never afraid to speak truth to power, and never stop in his relentless pursuit of the truth. And we need more of those experienced type reporters today. Well, indeed, following in that tradition, you describe yourself as one who is antagonistic against the government in general, describing your job as one which makes the members of the government, whomever they are, whichever party they are, responsible to the public by your asking questions and obtaining answers. And you're not there. H.L. Mencken said that journalists rarely encourage or should encourage friendship among those they cover. They don't even often encourage friendship among their competitive peers. True. Is that right? You yeah. think? I think that's accurate and, and, and a wonderful way to describe what you're, you know, Helen said, if you're looking for friends, uh, get out of journalism or someone else said, if you're looking for friends in DC, get a dog. But um, the journalist if, at, at its essence, being a journalist, being a reporter in the White House especially, is all about asking questions of those in power, holding their feet to the fire, and be willing to not take their first answer as gospel, but to continue pressing for answers. And that is, is it's the fact that we have, you know, people in the past, we had a lot of experience that we're, we're able to pull that off. It, you know, like I said, the first day I was in, um, in in the White House briefing room, it was Sam Donaldson who pointed out to me, he said, Brian, take a look at that front row right there of reporters, you know, for that first seven in the Brady briefing room. He said, there's probably 250 years of experience there. Listen to every one of them. Learn from every one of them. Of course, then he said, uh, Helen probably had 200 years of those experience, and she said something smart to him, and he said, Helen, it's okay to have an unexpressed thought. And Helen said, Sam, when it comes to you, I have a lot of unexpressed thoughts. And I didn't know where else I was going to go with my life, but I knew that day I was as happy as I ever could be in the profession. Those were two masterful reporters just enjoying themselves and at the same time not taking themselves too seriously. So um, I learned a lot from them, and I, I think uh, many of us today could learn from them. You have in their tradition – had at least, that I count, two, probably three, maybe more, what I would call major run-ins with U.S. (laughs) presidents. 
because of your desire to hold people's feet to the fire. So perhaps let's start with you telling us about your encounter with H.W. Bush on the war on drugs. Well, that was back, um, like I said, I had covered a lot of the war on drugs. And um, by this time, I was a reporter for an NBC affiliate, KMOL, in San Antonio, Texas. And for four years, as a crime reporter, not as a a, a political, uh, I did cover state politics and I covered local politics, but my beat was crime on a daily basis. And, um, you know, I I got to see a lot. I, I was, if you ever see the documentary on Ann Richards, I'm in that with her asking her questions about crime and a bunch of that in her first uh, um, legislative session. But on the most part, I covered crime and I'd spent a lot of time with DEA agents and local agents out in the field as they had made busts. I had been involved in a couple of shootouts peripherally. I had seen the shootouts. I had, I, I witnessed things I don't want to remember and can't forget. And so when they called this, they call a drug summit news conference in San Antonio, where the presidents of seven nations in the central South and, you know, the United States and Bush were to gather. And so we, I I got put on the bus and was taken to the McNay art museum where they set up the press conference. And uh, the first row was uh, as usual, you know, first row of reporters was taken up by the travel pool, the people who traveled with the presidents and then with the president. And then behind them was, you know, the rest of us, the, the also, you know, the great unwashed reporters of the media and the ground rules were that each president could take two questions from a reporter. And after that, you couldn't ask a president anymore. And I refused to follow that rule. So when, uh, after they called on the pool, I, I don't know why. Somehow it's maybe it's my my face or my smile or or whatever. But I usually get the attention of a of a president. They usually call on me, and so uh, Bush noticing me uh, called on me, and I said I'd like to ask him a question. He said he's already had his two questions. Well, he had two questions, but it was nothing about the drug summit. It was about uh, Pat Buchanan catching up with him in the polls, and so he was he didn't want to take any more questions and. He told me to sit down, and I refused to sit down. I said, well, listen. He goes, well, we're not used to being treated like that around here. And I think I may have said something like, well, welcome to San Antonio. And then I um, be, I said, look, I'll ask the president of Mexico. And he goes, well, he's he's already had a question. I said, yes, but he's only had one. And he said, okay, go ahead. But, you know, this is very unusual. He took a drink of water. He was very condescending. And so I asked the question. It was about, you know, and I said, look, I'll ask him the question. I'll appreciate it if you answer it, too. And I said, you know, I spent the last four years covering the DEA in, in the war on drugs. Your frontline soldiers in the war on drugs don't believe that the war on drugs can be won. They consider it a joke. And they consider the drug summit news conference here a joke. What do you tell your frontline defenders on the war on drugs if you want them to think it's no joke? Actually, a bit of a softball question. But front and you know, I, I loaded it heavy with what the um, law enforcement said about it. And look, most of them got tired of putting their lives on the line for marijuana busts and and you know any kind of drug bust when you know it was all to them a big hypocrisy since it was the demand for drugs in the united states that was making this war on drugs inevitable you know it's it's talk about basic commercialism or basic capitalism you know supply and demand we had a great demand the government cut the supply the prices went up 
the drug violence in, increased because of the fact that the prices for these drugs went up and there was so much to be made off of them. We caused the problem, but they didn't want to address that, and they haven't addressed that in 40 years. And uh, so I, I got the president of Mexico to answer it. Bush never would. I got back to my station. Uh, they said, good job, way to go. These are dog and pony shows. Good job. And the next day they called me up and said I was rude to the president and I was going to be fired. The day after that, I got a call. I was sitting in my underwear uh, talking on the phone with CNN, doing a, a, a piece, a phoner for CNN. And after that, I got a call from uh, a guy at Fox, of, uh, well, actually at America's Most Wanted. And he said, I have a real need for an arrogant, obnoxious investigative reporter. Are you free? And I, I said, Mom, is that you? And it turns out it wasn't Mom. It was the executive producer at America's Most Wanted. I came up here to D.C. and I've been here ever since. And famously, you had a run-in with the former President Trump, which got your... <laughs> More than pass. one. <laughs> right, but one which got your hard pass pulled. And so why don't you tell us about the hard pass and how did you manage to get your hard pass pulled? Do you, I think only you and Jim Acosta accomplished there were that. Two of us, yeah, two, two of us in, during the uh, Trump administration, um, it was... Acosta first, and that was over. And Jim and I always seem to follow each other. Or I, I, I would ask a question, and then I, I think Trump liked fighting, so he would call on Jim, and then he would call on me, or he would call on me, and then he would call on Jim. And the day that Jim got his pull was the day after the um, uh, midterm elections. When I first he called on me, and I said, "Mr. President, um, it, with the Democrats taking over this." Um, taking over the uh, Congress? Are you going to be able to work with them even if they, you know, like Clinton did? Are you, going to, are you going to be able to work with them even if they decide to impeach you, which everyone knew was coming? Uh, can you compartmentalize it and work with them? Or is it just, are you going to be on a war footing? And he said it's going to, he was going to be on a war footing and he got pissed. I tried to ask him a follow-up and, and he says, no, someone's already else has been called on. And it was Jim. And I said, well, since it's Jim, here you go. Because <laughs> And then Jim tried to ask him a question. He got upset. They said he tried to grab a microphone. That didn't happen. I was there. Uh, the president called him a rude, you know, uh, member of the fake news. And so the next thing you know, they tried to pull his press pass. Well, that didn't work. They went to court once, and that was it. And then um, about six months later, the president had a uh, – he had some kind of meeting in the in the uh, uh, Rose Garden for – uh, bloggers and social media, a lot of the people that had supported him and, in, in, you know, the, they call it the alternative press, but I don't look at it that way. They're, they're members of the press. They're not alternative members. They're just, you know, not well-regulated, not well-disciplined and not, not very well-experienced, but, you know, they're members of the press. So they had them all sitting down and uh, we were, uh, the rest of us were standing up, you know, the mainstream media and Trump got done speaking and then walked away. I said, Mr. President, would you mind staying and ask, answering a few questions from us? And then I don't remember who it was. There was somebody who said, oh, he's already talked to the real media. Why don't you stop crying? Me, me, me. And I turned to a friend and I said, geez, here's a crowd that's anxious for, <clears throat> anxious for uh, being possessed by the devil. Uh, no, I think I said anxiously waiting demonic possession. And I think I did it in my Rodney Dangerfield voice or a little bit of it. And uh, that prompted uh, one of the uh, members of the alternative media to come over and scream at me and threaten me. And uh, I said, hey, we can, 
we can talk here. We can go outside and talk all day long, and I don't care. And um, for that, I had my uh, – it was weeks later. I, I never heard a word back from the White House about it. They never said anything to me. And, in fact, uh, one day I found myself in the South Lawn as a, a, a Trump was departing the White House. And it was one of those chopper talk sessions that I helped initiate, and I'll never forgive myself for that. But he he showed up and was taking questions from us, and he took two questions from me that day. So he gets on the helicopter and leaves, and I get an email saying my White House press pass has been suspended for something that happened like a month ago. And um, would I turn in my press pass, blah, 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 blah. So the first call I made was to Jim. I said, Jim, who I, I remember who he used as a um, – lawyer on his case and i had actually met him ted boutros great guy and um and and a great uh, lawyer and very well versed in the first amendment and so he gave me uh ted's number and i called ted and uh the next thing you know i had to i was in court three times i um sued him got a temporary injunction they uh appealed they lost they appealed again they lost and uh, even the even even the judges that the president had selected to serve ruled against him. And in fact, in in one of the uh, uh, in the appeal process, we're sitting in federal court, and one of the uh, prosecutors representing the administration said, "If they didn't throw me out for what I did, then what's to keep reporters from running through the White House mooning people?" And which was. I, I, I mean, what? And so one of the judges said, you know, in no way you, you can still uh, you can still institute rules of decorum. Uh, there's no way there's going to be rogue. I love the term rogue mooning reporters in the White House. And so I, I was able to keep my press pass fighting for it three different times and, and beating the president soundly every time he, he challenged it. You write today that trust in the media has been substantially eroded. And you say that it invites two important questions. One, how did this happen? And then two, what can be done about it? So let's start, Brian, with how did this happen? And you start, in some sense, with what you call government deconstruction. And it traces itself back in modern times to Ronald Reagan and perhaps the lack of enforcement of antitrust law. So let's walk through the various stages of government deconstruction from Reagan through Clinton and George W. and then even into Obama. Well, Reagan was the first to implement it. It actually began with Richard Nixon and Roger Ailes, both imps, uh, devilish, hellish imps. And it starts with that time, it it may have started with a checker speech when Nixon was uh, admonished by the press and back, you know, when he was with uh, running as a vice president for Eisenhower and he got caught with his hand in the cookie jar and taking inappropriate gifts and came out and made that famous checker speech where he flipped turn he he actually did what you know trump later did very well and that was turn around the accusation on the accusers 
And he said, I, you know, I, one thing we're going to keep is that little dog checkers. And everybody remembers it as the checker speech. He hated the media. And there was that one speech that he made when he lost the governorship of California, where he said, you won't have Dick Nixon to kick around anymore. And of course we did. And when he, so when he ran for president, and by the way, he was a stain, a cancerous stain from the very beginning. He is one of the reasons why we have what we have today in American politics is because of Richard Nixon. And he got Roger Ailes, who was a young uh, Philadelphia, uh, I think it was Michael Douglas show when it was in Philly, was one of his uh, producers. And they saw an opportunity to reshape the media. And he wanted a right-wing you know, media network, and he wanted, he wanted someone who would preach his propaganda. Well, he left office before it could be instituted. But when Ronald Reagan came into office, he picked up on the Nixon strategy. He hired Roger Ailes. He dismantled, he, he, he relinquished under the guise of making the press more free. He made the press less free because he allowed by, by loosening the restrictions on ownership, he let newspapers, television, and radio stations gobble each other up. So there's fewer and fewer. So to this point today, there are twice the number of people on the planet as on the day I was born and probably half the number of reporters. And the greatest example of the problems in the to breast that started with Ronald Reagan when he got rid of the fairness doctrine and loosened the restrictions. Look, the fairness doctrine made you, it, it gave us public service and public affairs programming, gave us the news, made sure that we um, were fair in our news. None of that exists today. And so as an example, what you have today in Laredo, Texas, where I worked in 1984, when I was there in 1984, the population was 100,000. There were two newspapers in English and I believe two in Spanish. There were three television stations in English and one in Spanish, several, uh, at least one or two magazines and a couple or four, two to four radio stations, all of them doing news. Today, in 2022, there are more than 300,000 people, three times the number of people. And how much news do we have there? One television station, one newspaper. That's the problem in a nutshell. That's what Ronald Reagan started. And then after him, it was uh, George Herbert Walker Bush and my interaction with him aside, simply looked at, at the it extended uh, Reagan's reign of terror over the press. Then there was uh, the um, Telecommunications Act, which uh, passed during, uh, uh, let's see, Clinton's era. That further loosened, loosened ownership requirements. At one point in time, as I point out in the book, in the early 80s, the unions and, the, and uh, many of the newspaper owners got together to impress upon Congress the need to limit ownership to 20 newspapers and five or six television stations. They instead went the other way. So today you have the you know, all the you know you have these vulture capitalists that own hundreds of newspapers and are closing them all down or minimizing their impact. And how do they minimize their impact? The easy way, if like when the Courier Journal was bought out by Gannett, the Courier Journal had bureaus all over the world. I think they had uh, reporters in New York, D.C. had a bureau of reporters in D.C. covering D.C. events for you know for the Kentucky and area. They had uh, uh, reporters in Chicago. They had stringers all over the place, and they, and they worked in foreign cities. Well, after Gannett bought them over, they go, well, 
gee, we already have all these reporters working for us, for other publications. What do we need more of them for? Let's save money. So they would cut them. Fewer reporters, fewer reporting, less reporting. And that money is never, when they cut to make money, it never goes into the newsroom. It always goes into a board member's pocket. So that's, you know, that was also Clinton. That's why we have iHeartRadio owning hundreds of radio stations. In my hometown of Louisville, Kentucky, I think they own six or seven radio stations. That's, that's limiting people. That's limiting access to information, not increasing access. And after him, it was George Bush II, and it was <laughs> there you ended up with the Patriot Act, which enabled them to you know, go out and, and seek information from reporters without even requesting the information from reporters. It was a horrible piece of legislation that led to, and it was mostly, most of the people that complained about the Patriot Act when it first came out said, look, this is just basically a lot of stuff we wouldn't pass before, and you're putting it all together in one bill to make sure that you know, we do something against terrorism, and it's not really going to do anything against terrorism. It's going to hurt our people. And then finally, Obama, Trump you know about. Um, it, it, the table was set with Ronald Reagan. Everything that happened after that was made possible. The seeds that were uh, created with Nixon, planted by Reagan, who was absolutely the one of the worst presidents we ever had, and enabled all the crap that we see today to exist, bore fruit with Donald Trump. And Obama did something unthinkable as well. He used the Espionage Act to go after whistleblowers, and to, that limits information that reporters can get, and it has a chilling effect on journalism. He used it, I think it was eight times more than any other president had ever used the Espionage Act, and that's uh, reprehensible. So in a nutshell, your thesis is there are these thousands of tiny cuts that are aimed at lessening the ability of the press to hold the government accountable. You've got Reagan's stopping enforcement of the antitrust laws. Then you have Reagan's refusal to enforce the Fairness Doctrine. And, and the Fairness Doctrine, as you said, which became law in 1949. Under Truman's administration, yes. Required the holders of a broadcast license, which is deemed a public trust. Yes. To hold broadcasters to the obligation to present on controversial issues of public importance both sides of the issue, honest, equitable, and balanced reporting of those issues. And you can argue, Michael, right there, you could argue that that 1949, that, that piece of legislation, that, that, that was what brought television news, gave birth to television news, and certainly a lot of local news and a lot of local, because television stations were under no obligation to do any of this. But because of what they were doing was viewed as a public trust, they had to inform. They had to take the time to inform. I guarantee you, if 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 that hadn't been, if the fairness doctrine hadn't ever been brought into existence, there, it's doubtful that we would have anything other than entertainment tonight. Something like that is news because there was no, and, and it's and it's loss is why we've regressed to what we see today. You and I have both been on those, you know. Uh, the, the panel shows on, on networks. And that's not news. It's 
inexpensive to produce. It's good to watch for those who like news. It's infotainment where you have uh, oftentimes you just have an anchor moderating two or three other people arguing about something for five or ten minutes, and then you stop and you move on. Nothing's ever resolved. No facts are ever vetted, and on we go, and it looks good. It's cheap. But what if you had to put that, donate that hour for these shows, you were you were forced to do actual reporting, which was what the Fairness Doctrine kind of uh, uh, made possible. And getting rid of it has caused a de-evolution in news. So I want to turn a minute to, uh, so continuing this conversation, in your thesis, Clinton's signing of the Communications Act of 1996, which ended cross-ownership restrictions, that is, before the Communications Act of 1996, media companies were limited in the types of businesses that they could operate. If you owned a television station and or radio numbers. station, you couldn't own a newspaper, and it limited the numbers of people. They did the same thing in financial institutions. If you were a bank, you yes. couldn't own a brokerage. And they passed these laws that ended these cross-ownership restrictions, both in banking and in communication. And these mergers and consolidations has led to the media being in a smaller and smaller number of hands. You say about that, Brian, that the fewer number of owners in the media allows the government greater control of the media. So can you flesh that out? Well, 80% of what you see, reader, here when I first got into this business was owned by about 24 companies today. A mere five or six own 90% of what you see, reader, here. It's far easier to deal with a smaller number of people from the government's perspective. You can call representatives of all five or six major major media companies into, into Jen Psaki's office and go, listen, we, uh, we need your help here. We need to do A, B, or C. By the way, we give you access. We give you... You know, you're, you have the, you get to sit on Air Force One. We get to bring you into the Oval. You get great access to the president. It benefits you to play ball with us. And you're going to have very few people in that small number because they are all friends. Guess what? They all know each other, all the members of the board. Everybody who owns these large companies all shuffle in the same, you know, suit. They all know each other. They're all friends. And so they, they go along with it. It's very easy to control the narrative. From that, from their point of view, doing that, the larger number of people when, it, uh, you know, it was Ben Bagdickian for the Washington Post, great editor and also a mentor, um, who said, you know, that you're not, you, you need a diversity of ownership. It's not just a diversity of you know, age, sex, and, and uh, race, and creed, and all that kind of, and religion. You need all that, but it's the diversity of thought that you really need, and you're not going to get that when you know, five, everyone says we're so uh, tended to the left or, or tended to the right. We're really tended toward the buck, towards money. Those boardrooms that control the five major news organizations, I guarantee you, are not liberally biased. They're biased towards money. And that's where, that's the biggest problem in journalism. We're now controlled by the government. We no longer set the narrative. There are people, everybody in this country, Michael, knows there's a problem with the press, but they don't understand what it is because they don't, most of them don't work in it. I do, and here's the problem. There's too few of us. There's too many monopolies. 
There's, there's not enough legislative protection, and there's a dearth of community journalism. And until we fix those, and the easiest fix is community journalism, and until we commit to fixing those, we're not going to fix the problems in the press. I want to talk about one thing, which is a bit of a detour from what we're talking about, but I think important. You, in your laying out of Nixon to Reagan to Clinton to the Patriot Act under George W. Bush, which gave the government many more powers to undermine the free press and particularly attack whistleblowers. That was Mm -hmm. one of the hallmarks of the USA Patriot Act. Mm -hmm. You said, properly so, that Obama used the Espionage Act against leakers more than any modern president. And I wanted to see if you wanted to talk about one or two cases, which I think are important. First was the New York Times reporter James Risen and the fight that he had with the Obama administration over their desires to have him compel the disclosure of his sources involving the CIA and the Iran nuclear problem. Well, as a reporter who went to jail to protect a source more than four times, this is going to be a short conversation. The government has no right, no right to go after reporters. And they go after us first when they should go after us last. I only have the ability as a reporter to ask you to supply me information. I have access to what the government allows me to have access to about their inner workings. And while I think obviously, that they need to be far more transparent than they are. I have to deal in the world that is. And it bothers me to no end that reporters who are resourceful can go out and find more information than apparently the government with the power of subpoena can. And you're a former prosecutor. You know well how effective a subpoena can be. So I find it often disingenuous when the government tells us as reporters, that they absolutely have to have the information that we have because, A, it's vital to their case. They can't get it otherwise. B, how did, what it boils down to is B. They want to know how we got the information, who, who was the snitch, and why. It's all about protecting their own behind. So every case where the government comes after a reporter, as they did in his case, as they did in mine, as they have done in many others, is to simply try to find out the source of their own embarrassment. Well, and to that end, the second case I wanted to talk to you about is Julian Assange. Let me put on the table my point of view, which is that Julian Assange is a reporter and that um, what he did should be covered by the First Amendment and we should be seeking to guarantee his freedoms in the same way that we did when the Pentagon Papers were leaked. That's not the position of the government. Government under Obama and under Trump has been, and including under Biden, is still going after Assange, notwithstanding the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press, issuing statements saying that the indictment of, of Assange for espionage should have a chilling effect on any journalism advocate, any free speech advocate. So tell us, if you would, what do you think about Julian Assange? And the same thing that you do. Obviously, the same thing that you do. Look, 
they always try to make one of the things that the government is really good at is trying to make it about the reporter. You know, in my case, I was nosy and I was, it was none of my business. And I talked to a, a, a guy that was accused of killing a police officer. How dare I? Rise in, they're going to say nasty things about it. Assange, they say nasty things about it. They always want to, to, to shift the focus of what's wrong. Not, you know, we believe in the First Amendment, but in this case, no, because that's always their argument. I put together a group of people called the First Jailbirds Club. There's about 13 members of us that um, have gone to jail to protect the First Amendment by not giving up our source. And we met for the first time in Washington, D.C., and had a, uh, an engagement for, before the National Press Club in which we all spoke and told our story. And we got together in a little room, uh, one of the rooms in the National Press Club, to talk and have coffee and meet each other. Many of us hadn't, didn't know each other, hadn't met each other. And every single one of us had the exact same story. Someone in the government said to them, we support the First Amendment, but not in your case because you are the problem. And they never want to address the First Amendment issues. One of the greatest ways that, you know, the government has of convincing us that we've done wrong is to blame us when they want to keep us from getting information that belongs to us, which was one of the most offensive things to ever hear out of Donald Trump's mouth was, you know, we're the enemy of the people. No, we are the people. That singular person was the enemy of the people. And every president has been complicit in this. Democrat or Republican, and Biden is no different. Biden, you know, when he was on the campaign trail, he said that he was going to curtail because of, you know, remember that Jamal Khashoggi was killed. A Washington Post, you know, writer, reporter, living in the United States, walked into a, 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 a Turkish embassy and never walked out and was murdered, sliced in half, diced and, and burned. And there's an excellent, there are a couple of excellent documentaries on this. And in the end, it was the uh, <laughs> being held responsible, of course, was uh, the uh, uh, from Saudi Arabia was the crown prince. And on the on the uh, campaign trail, he, you know, Biden told us he would absolutely hold him responsible for that after he got in office. And he didn't. No president has held the royal family, responsible for Kosoji's death. And in fact, the only thing that Biden did was release a report that showed, you know, that everyone already had showing who was responsible, begging the question, why don't you do something? I think he revoked his phone privileges. He'll talk to his dad. He won't talk to the son. Big deal. Until you want to really do something about protecting those who go after the information, that's us. Then you're not a free speech advocate. Indeed, the Reporters Without Borders organization, which ranks countries by freedom of the press, they have a a matrix, just like there's a corruption index, which countries are the most corrupt. This uh, Reporters Without Borders has a similar matrix. And the United States ranks 44th in freedom of the press globally. Yeah. And, And how is that? We are the we have free speech enshrined in the First Amendment to our Constitution, not the tenth, not the eleventh, not an add-on, not a codicil to a will. That's the first thing that the government protected was speech. 
because they realized the, our forefathers who brought forth on this continent a great nation, blah, 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 conceived in liberty and dedicated the proposition that all men are created equal. Well, they enshrined in the First Amendment the idea that to be free, you had to be able to speak your mind. Today, you know, and, we, and we were held up as a beacon for many years for free speech. But today, the, the Western democracies in uh, Europe far surpass us as far as free speech goes. And we are in a troubled, we're called a troubled democracy in, um, in the Reporters Without Borders uh, report. And there's a good reason for that. We have failed to protect um, those who provide us with the information. You know, the reason why it's called a cliche, don't shoot the messenger, is because, you know, well, that, that's happened. You don't kill the guy giving you the news, but if you don't want to hear bad news, that's exactly what you do. If you don't want to change it, if you don't want to hear it, shoot the messenger. And uh, that's become more popular in this country as fascism has increased. And look, I'm not going to, I'm not mincing words. I cannot compare and contrast Biden and Trump equally and and you know but well you're not being fair yeah i am being fair there's some there's a a a low minimum standard that you must reach that is belief in the constitution now the democrats always stumble over that bar or have or are now and what's left of the republican party the fascists do not and trump never has and so you know every time you hear about the problems in journalism, they are exas- what, the problems in our country are exacerbated by the problems in journalism. Politics is the, go- is the way we work out our differences for a common goal. And the communication, the scientific way to communicate so that we're all on the same page is journalism. When you kill that, when you make sure that, that you don't have that anymore, that's when fascism will take over. I want to talk about one last topic before we turn to solutions. Rock and roll. One of the, no, not yet. One of the nicest parts of the book was that you outline these problems about which we've been speaking, but then you have a very considered section of the book, which is your proposed solutions. But before we get to solutions, I just want to ask you about one other thing that you talk about, which I sort of wonder how it fits into the thinking you have. She, Helen Thomas said that journalists are by nature antagonistic toward power. Mencken said you shouldn't, if you want to be a journalist, think about having friends in the government and that a journalist without energy, enthusiasm, and integrity is not really much of a journalist. One of the questions I wanted to ask you, Brian, is about this notion of the reporter as celebrity. And it seems to me, my view, based on the reading of your book, is that you believe that making reporters celebrities has undermined their ability to be appropriately antagonistic to the government because they all want to go to the White House Correspondents' Dinner together. It's a government media prom and they all want to be at the cool table. Well, there isn't one of us who's ever questioned the president that hasn't had a had some celebrity sprinkled on them for at least a brief bit of time. That's because you're challenging one of the most powerful men in the world. You're standing your feet while you're doing it. 
and God knows what they're going to say when they when someone has the audacity to challenge them. But the continued celebrity, well, any celebrity of a journalist begs the question, do you do it, what you do, for your own self-aggrandizement, or are you doing it for, the, for real reasons? And the celebrity at some point in time overcomes the reality and even some of the best celebrity journalists have ceased being journalists. That being said, if there were level heads and better experienced heads today, I think they could handle that a little bit better. And I look at some of my mentors as, you know, there was Sam was a celebrity, you know, for a while, you know, because he challenged the president and His name and face was well-known. But the biggest one, of course, you go back to, and that's Walter Cronkite, who got his start as a beat reporter, covered World War II, had an infinite amount of gravitas, was serious-minded, and gave you news. And then that one day in the 60s, after he got back from Vietnam, and he put together a world-class documentary, he said at the end of it, and it's obvious to this reporter, that we can't win the war in Vietnam, we're going to have to negotiate, you know, our withdrawal, which many credited for killing Lyndon Johnson's desire for a second term, which unfortunately gave us Richard Nixon, because the Democrats had no bin strength then and have no bin strength now. But what the reason why you could Middle America lost you know, abandoned LBJ that day was because when Cronkite said in this reporter's opinion, he told you it was an opinion and he told you he was a reporter and his celebrity did not come into play because he did not allow it to. He used the facts logically. He was grounded enough and experienced enough and people took him seriously enough that you appreciated it even though he was in the public eye he was not a Hollywood celebrity. We are not Hollywood celebrities. No matter how much we want to hobnob with them or with the, or with the president or anyone that enhances our uh, stature in the community, we're not those people. And we should never aspire to be those people. So in our remaining time, let's tick off the highlights of what you think or the solutions and how they're likely to be achieved. So you want to run through them or do you want me yeah, to? Yeah, I'll go through them. And if I forget anything, you've got, I know you'll, 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 key, you'll cue me in, but I want to start with individually. I put in the book some of the individual things reporters can do to make sure that they're doing their job better. And that's because I understand we're going to keep, you know, those social media people that showed up under Trump bloggers, uh, live streaming events, small people, you know, small, not small people, but, you know, small groups of people calling themselves journalists or the, even the individual calling themselves a journalist and putting stuff on the Internet. That's not going away. But we could be more responsible in how we do if we actually aspire to true journalism. There, there's a couple of things in there that outline how to do it. You know, at, at the very least, you need a copy editor. Someone who's going to look over your story and go, that's BS. What's this? Uh, spell that right. That's spelled wrong. 
um, that, that type of thing, and challenging people on the facts, not someone of a like mind, but someone of a, a copy editor's mind or a news editor's mind is needed to call yourself a journalist. And there's ways to verify facts and ways you, you carry yourself in front of people and how you go after information. All that's for the individual journalist. We need better on the individual, at the, at the very basic level, we need those type of people as reporters. That's a start. Then building up from there, community journalism. We need more than anything else to make sure that, you know, it'd be nice if you got like a $10 rebate on your, or a hundred dollar rebate on your taxes because you subscribe to a local newspaper. It'd be nice if we had more public funding for local newspapers. It'd be nice if we reinstituted the public funding that we had, that i.e. those those public notice ads, which for many small newspapers at the end of the year was the sum total of their profits or most of those profits for the very small newspapers of record. I ran two of those for 12 years. I know firsthand that you need those. It provides transparency in government, provides subsistence for newspapers, and is a great way to build communities. You need low-interest loans for those uh, small newspapers. You need low-interest loans for the small independent publishers and broadcasters. You need tax breaks for them as well. That helps build the economy as well. Then moving up from that, when you go to – look, there's three things that need to be done at a federal level. Well, the most controversial thing that I'll mention, uh, the one that no large media corporation wants to talk about but has to be done, is busting up the media monopolies. If we do not bust up the media monopolies, we have a monolithic power structure in the media today. Many media companies, these top five media companies, have more power than some nations to communicate ideas and information. We need to level that playing field. We need to increase competition. We need to put more reporters on the ground. And we're not going to do that by hedge funds coming in, closing, you know, buying up two or 300 newspapers and getting rid of copy editors and reporters. That's like buying a new car without an engine. Why do you buy a a, a local newspaper? Because they're giving you local news. Oh, let's cut the local news and just make these a shopper and just put as many ads as possible. Then the ad sales, it's a downward spiral. After a while, nobody reads the damn thing, and the advertisers stop showing up. And eventually the newspapers close, and we sit there scratching our head going, how did this happen? It happened because of blatant stupidity and greed. It happened because we never saw past the end of our own nose. It happened because we didn't look 20 years down the road and go, hey, how do we sustain journalism? We may not make the largest profit, but we'll make a steady profit and at the same time provide information. We never did that. So break up the media monopolies. Secondly, reinstitute fairness doctrine so that you make sure that there are at least when you turn on, you know, I don't know, Breitbart Entertainment or Fox News or MSNBC or CNN, that when appropriate, you're going to hear from someone else who thinks differently in the context of news and vetted facts, not in the context of, of sitting down on a panel show and arguing without verifying those facts. That's the key difference. And by doing so, you'll get people out of their informational silos. President Biden recently at his two-hour news conference called it informational alleys. God bless you, Mazel tov, That's great. But it's, you know, I call it informational silos. People don't, they, people have begun to look for news that they want instead of news that they need. Because I'll guarantee you, we will sell you what sells best. 
which is what, and that's government interference that has led us that way. And so today you go out, you buy the news you want to hear, and rather than the news that you need to read, see, or hear. Has to end. We need the fairness doctrine back. Then thirdly, you need to support a national shield law for reporters so we don't go to jail. A shield law enables reporters to keep confidential sources. So unlike myself, Ryzen and about a dozen other people on this planet who work in, live in the United States, you won't have to go to jail or prison in order to protect a source. This is used every day to leverage reporters. And if you don't allow reporters to do investigative reporting, then what you end up with is what we've got today on television, garbage. So, Brian, there's one more matter I'd like to talk to you about, and that's the landmark 1964 Supreme Court decision in New York Times versus Sullivan. In that decision, the Supreme Court set a very high bar for public officials to prove that they were defamed. They have to show not only that a statement was inaccurate and harmed their reputation, but that those who produced it, said it, acted with actual malice, meaning that they displayed a reckless disregard for the truth and knew it was false at the time they said it. The law currently considers an occasional mistake the natural result of the free press. So can you tell us about your thoughts on New York Times versus Sullivan and your encounter with President Trump on this very matter? Well, that was his uh, first, I believe it was his first briefing in the White House uh, briefing room, in the Brady briefing room. It was, what, three years into his presidency, and he walked in to talk about the coronavirus epidemic. But he also, since he was taking questions, opened himself up. And I asked the question because he had threatened to sue the New York Times Uh, based on an opinion piece they had written. And he told me quite bluntly and and point blank, he said, I I said, how are you going to sue somebody over an opinion? And he goes, well, it's the wrong opinion. So since everyone's entitled to their own opinion, it's questionable as to why or how you would sue someone if they print an opinion you don't like, particularly if you're in the public eye and you're president of the United States. The ability to sue someone over an opinion particularly if you're in the public eye, particularly if you're the president, particularly if you're an elected official, is uh, wrong on so many levels. If you're not able to question a president or a public official without the possibility of getting it wrong, then uh, we're, we're doomed as a nation and, the free, and free speech is doomed. So the high, what the high profile case of Sullivan uh, in the New York Times case, what it enabled reporters and journalists to do was to operate in an environment where you didn't have to always look over your shoulder because there's no way you're going to ever not get something wrong. You're always going to make a mistake. It's the malicious part of it that makes it actionable. If you go after someone just to go after them, if you go after someone and there's a predicate for for proof that you went after them just because you didn't like them, that's maliciousness. And that's what uh, it codified in that uh, Supreme Court decision. And what many in the public eye, particularly politicians, would like to have removed because they would like to be able to, to stifle free speech. And removing the requirement of maliciousness in our speech would enable politicians, it would lower the bar and enable them to go after us much easier. Uh, it would be much easier to do so. And the consequences are 
are chilling on the very prospect of free speech. Indeed, candidate Trump said that he wanted New York Times versus Sullivan overturned or watered down. And his quote at the time was, once that happens, we're going to sue people like you, like you've never been sued before. So he saw this as a weaponization of the First Amendment uh, free speech rights that the Constitution entitles us to. Yep. Yeah, he wanted to weaponize. Of course, that's what he's always wanted to do. Donald Trump is is nothing if not consistent in his desire to be an authoritarian and to destroy the very principles of this country that make it possible for you and I to uh, to communicate and for a country to uh, work together to solve its problems. That's Donald Trump. He wants to be a king or more accurately, uh, a fascist <laughs> authoritarian figure who has you know complete control over the state. While we're talking, Sarah Palin is in trial in New York, and she's suing the New York Times, alleging defamation for an editorial that mistakenly tied her incendiary rhetoric to a shooting in Arizona. When the Times realized its mistake, it immediately corrected the editorial. But, But she has sued nonetheless in the hopes perhaps, of getting a decision that would, in some sense, undermine the New York Times versus Sullivan doctrine. And it seems that she, though it's not before the Supreme Court yet, has fellow travelers in Justice Gorsuch and Justice Thomas, who have, in public statements, offered criticism of New York Times versus Sullivan. And I think that the risk for the press, if an honest mistake is actionable, would be unbelievably detrimental to the coverage of public affairs. Do you think? It would destroy the coverage of public affairs. Yes. And look, she is trying. And, and you know, there are many court watchers who believe that she has a very weak case, but the very fact that it's before a jury and she'd be able to plead a case before people who are unfamiliar with um, the tenets of New York Times versus Sullivan, give her an advantage and a potential for uh, creating or lowering the bar. So that's why it's, it's, it's for us in the business, this is a case that uh, has to be looked at closely and for the all Americans, but most people don't understand what the issues are or how they relate to them. But the simple fact of the matter is she's trying to do what Trump said he was going to do when he answered my question in the briefing room. And that is suing someone for an opinion. It's an editorial. You're allowed to make your opinion. And by the way, they all stand. It's amazing how they flip the script on this one because they've always said, you know, hey, there's alternative facts. We have alternate facts. And so that's fiction. They, they are malicious in producing their opinion. They are malicious in going after those who do not agree with them. And now they're trying to turn it on. They're trying to flip the script and make it appear as if the New York Times is maliciously going after them. And by the way, we don't have to worry about that standard anymore. It's not malicious. That It doesn't matter whether it's malicious or not. We get to come after you simply because you made a mistake. And when that happens, we all suffer. 
And I think, I guess, the thing that bothers me uh, as a First Amendment advocate is that the threat of defamation will cause journalists to self-center. Because unless you have the resources of a large news organization behind you, you can't afford the risk of being sued in defamation. Even if the suit is meritless, the fact of the suit costs you dearly. Well, that's the whole point, isn't it? To, to uh, stifle free speech and to make sure that you don't do it. And you're a- absolutely right. Larger publications and larger, you know, there's five or six uh, companies that control more than 90% of what we see reader here. They're not going to be the ones that are going to challenge you anyway. They're the ones that are working hand in hand, usually not to challenge you. It's the independents. It's the smaller publications. Those are the ones that will suffer the most. And they're the ones who pursue the facts uh, probably a little more vociferously and a little more stridently because they have more to gain by doing so. Um, if you break a good story by gum, you'll end up with good, you know, readership or viewership or listenership. And so those types of um, efforts will be, it's actually horrifying to me to consider the possibility that, that this woman could win this case. I'm hoping that uh, a jury sees it for what it is a very weak case and it's dismissed just as quickly and considered, uh, you know, she should be considered backwash in the annals of history, along with Donald Trump and everyone else who believes that they can say what they want without repercussion and no one else can. So we're pretty much at the end of our conversation, but I do want to ask you about one very important topic, and that is if you could tell us who the Rhythm Bandits are and (laughs) what role you play in them. (laughs) They are simply the baddest rock and roll band on the planet let's <laughs> and it it consists of a judge a uh, private defense attorney um uh, a reporter me uh, as lead singer our, our drum, i think one of them's a, a school teacher uh, and teaches a science and that's our drummer and then our bass player of course is a convicted gun runner no uh convicted drug dealer no just a good bass player he teaches a uh he he teaches at a local uh school how to play guitar so we've been together about a decade we play uh originals and good hard you know foot stomping rock and roll music and by gum it's uh it's a great it's great fun to do it and helps me stay sane brother helps me stay sane <laughs> It's a good thing, rock and roll, is it not? <laughs> yes, <laughs> absolutely. As you well know, some of the best times you and I have had together is talking rock and roll. <laughs> so, yeah, and I, God knows, I'm, I, you know, I love it and I miss it, and I wish it were more prevalent. And the, the worst thing about the pandemic is the inability to play out live as much as we we used to, and the need to be much more cautious uh, in doing so. But you know you get a good couple of hundred people together in a, in, in a, in a good venue and start playing some good rock and roll music. Everybody has a lot of fun and man, that's what we all need. All right. So on our next podcast, we'll debate uh, Beatles versus Rolling Stones. Oh, anytime you want as a Beatle fanatic, I'm in. <laughs> all right. The book is called free the press, the death of American journalism and how to revive it. Brian Karam, thank you so much for writing this important book, and thank you so much for joining us today on That Said.
Thanks, Mike. It's always, a, you know, it's always a pleasure just hanging out. That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin.